Are you going through a life change soon? Maybe going into your last year of college? Maybe about to graduate college? Maybe you're about to start working, start dating, about to get married, have and then raise children? Are you getting ready to retire from work or are you ready to continue growing old? Well, one of the greatest ways to prepare you for that life change is to learn from the experiences of others. It's to learn from the experiences of others. And I've been encouraged, as many of you guys have uh, come to myself and others, um, anticipating your next life change, you know, your next, next life stage, whatever that might be for us. It's like, how do you shepherd kids going into puberty and things like this? Uh, but I know so I've talked to you guys about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father, a parent, etc. And you all take the initiative to ask questions of others and then to learn from the experiences of others. And this shows forethought. This shows intentionality that you're actually thinking about what's going to come next. It shows your interest in being teachable and it reveals that you want to go into the situation prepared. I encourage you all to be asking questions of others. If you, if you are not used to the practice of it, I definitely encourage you to get in the practice of this. Uh, it helps you shape your expectations, doesn't it? One of the great benefits of asking questions about what is to come is that hearing other people's experiences shape our expectations for life in this world. It prepares us to live life in the face of reality. It helps us live in reality. In today's passage, God shapes our Christian expectations about life in this sinful world. That's what we see in this passage. God's shaping our expectations about life in this sinful world as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. And having the right expectations helps us then live for the glory of God, helps us then live for the will of God. I invite you guys to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 can be found on page 1016, I believe. The big idea here, expect suffering. That's the expectation here. Expect suffering because it prepares you for a life lived for the glory of God. Expect suffering because it prepares you for a life lived for the glory and will of God. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this section here. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The Christians that Peter was writing to were awaiting people. They were awaiting people. And we are just like them. We wait for the return of Jesus Christ. We live in this in-between time, which people find helpful to call the already, but not yet. We already have salvation, but we await final salvation. That We live in between the first coming of Jesus 
and the second coming of Jesus. So while we can own by God's grace what has happened in the past, Christ dying on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and believe, we look forward to final salvation. His second coming when Christ will bring this final salvation, when he will make his reign known throughout the entire universe. And this, in fact, is a huge life change that we look forward to. Well, in this letter, Peter reminds Christians of what they are to expect on a macro level. You know, that's the second coming of Jesus, his reign, his rule, the end times judgment. So let's just go ahead and review this. We're looking at 1 Peter 1, 5. He's talking about what the Christians can look forward to as they suffer, because they were certainly suffering for their faith. In chapter 1, verse 5, uh, you can scan there. Christ returns. Uh, Christ's return will bring final salvation that is ready to be re- revealed in the last time. So he's casting our eyes to the last time. If you scan 1, 7, and then verse 13, he speaks about this last time as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in 2, 12, it talks about it as the day of visitation, when Christ will be revealed, manifested once again. And in terms of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, if you look at the passage immediately above, um, you know, look at 18 till the end of chapter 3 there. Uh, Peter likens the Christian's experience to Noah's experience. So for those of you who aren't that familiar with Noah in the Old Testament, here Noah was a man who trusted God. He was a man who was righteous in his generation. And in that generation, he heralded God's salvation, even though the rest of the generation opposed God, right? And so God gave this call upon uh, Noah when he was 500 years old, believe it or not. And then the flood didn't come for six until 100 years later until when he was 600. So for 100 years, he's heralding righteousness. So he is a waiting man, waiting for the deliverance of God, waiting even for the judgment of God. So that's the Christian's experience. We are waiting, just like Noah, to be delivered out of a wicked generation who rejects Jesus. So the Christians are too. That's what Peter says. And Peter not only talks about what Christians wait for, he also addresses how they are to wait in his letter. How they are to wait. So here he's shaping expectations. Think of it this way. So he tells us to wait in hope. He tells us to wait in faith, in trust, in submission to proper authorities, and in meekness. And as he continues to shape our expectations, he directs us in our passage to our attitudes, so our mindset as we wait. He wants to adjust our expectations here as we prepare for what is to come. And so we turn to our first point. Point number one, expect suffering. Point number one, if you're a Christian, he says, expect suffering. If you look there in chapter 4, verse 1, it is very clear that this, there's an emphasis on attitude there in four one. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. So what he's doing, he's, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with studying the Bible, if you see a therefore, you ask, why is it therefore? What's the reason? He's basically picking up his argument, you know, uh, just as Jesus Christ suffered, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking or attitude or thought or knowledge. Um, So just as Peter talked about Christ suffering the flesh and then being raised by the Spirit's power, right, just as our Savior was persecuted, so Peter says, since he suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So the thought here when he says arm yourselves with the same way of thinking is pretty plain. Given Christ suffered here in his time on earth, Christians ought to prepare for the same. 
Just as Christ suffered here in the flesh, so Christians ought to prepare for the same. But, then he, but, but it's not just that. He goes further. Suffering should not only be prepared for, but it should be expected. Suffering should not only be prepared for, it should be expected. I mean, so we just have to look at the sufferings of Jesus to see this example. Suffering is not only something he experienced, right? Suffering is something that he expected to happen. He knew he was going to go into battle against Satan and sin. After all, Isaiah 53, which was 700 years before Christ, this was a prophecy about Jesus. God, through Isaiah, says this, It was the Lord's will to crush him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus knew that he would suffer. He expected suffering to come. He knew that this was the Lord's will for him. And so we are told, therefore, to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. And this is a military language here. It really is like military language. Equip yourselves with weapons, Peter says. That's how people use this term uh, during that time here. So when I think of arm yourselves, as I mentioned in the past, you know, I think of superhero movies um, where the good guys get strapped for battle. So my mind typically goes to Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. I don't know how many times I saw that film on, you know, public television. Uh, maybe my children might be thinking about Big Hero 6 when the character Baymax, you know, and the rest of his team are getting strapped for battle. He puts on the red suit. He puts on his powerful robot fist. And then so he is ready to go. He is suited up. Now, for the Christian, the key, Peter says, to surviving and being victorious in battle is to strap yourselves with the expectation of suffering. It's a surprising weapon, isn't it? Humanly speaking, we typically don't think that victory is won by embracing the fact that you will suffer. But what Peter says, you know, what what Peter says here that is so fundamental, many Christians, in my opinion, don't even don't even have that aspect as part of the armory. Suffering is not part of the armory that leads to victory in Jesus. And so this mindset, this attitude, this way of thinking is neglected. And even worse, it is rejected. You shouldn't even consider that to be part of the armory of the Christian. And here you can think of, uh, you think about world Christianity, for example, all over the world. Knows that much of the American mission, which unfortunately the church has kind of co-opted for themselves, is to avoid suffering. In fact, you know, the prosperity gospel is an American export that you can actually avoid suffering. That Christianity, the sub and substance of it, what does it look like to walk in Jesus? Uh, and evidence of it is that you do not suffer. But Peter says, no. You want to be victorious in Christ. You expect suffering. You arm yourself to the hip with the expectation that suffering will happen in the Christian life. When you think of typical weapons of warfare, you know, what do you think of? I think I typically think of the helmet of salvation. I think of the shield of faith. I think of the sword of the spirit. But what is so strange among many Christians is that is that uh, the expectation that Peter lays upon us is absent. And then even when we are thinking about the Christian life as a battle. 
We aren't supposed to think that these weapons of war, warfare somehow keep us from physical death. I think that's typically how Americans might think about it. We read Ephesians 6 and we think, okay, we strap ourselves with the weapons of warfare and therefore we keep ourselves from, to some degree, physical death. I mean, it sounds kind of strange, uh, but in many ways I think we see that there's evidence of some sort of soft prosperity gospel when we face suffering even though we think we are strapping ourselves with the Ephesians 6 weapons of warfare, and then we get angry at God because we actually suffer physically. I mean, that I think is, 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 reflects the fact that I think many people somehow think that strapping ourselves with the weapons of warfare, um, spiritual warfare, are supposed to keep us from physical death. But that's not true. The very reason the Christian armor is given in passages like Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter here, is not to preserve our physical lives, but it is to preserve our spiritual lives, even in the face of death. Now certainly we believe in the resurrection, but that does not mean that we will escape earthly suffering. To obtain the resurrection means we must, in fact, we must, in fact, endure physical death. So, Christian, let me ask you a question for application. In your world, is suffering for the faith, even in the picture, like, is this a legitimate expectation? And then it's useful to broaden the picture to think suffering in general. So, are you expecting suffering at all? And then how does that inform your daily life? Friends, we need, once again, to get our expectations right. It'll help us live in God's world. It'll help us trust in God as our good shepherd. I mean, if we get expectations wrong, then we are going to get owned, absolutely owned, when we face reality in this world. But yet, even in our uh, lack of judgment, even in our lack of wisdom here, God is so kind to show us reality in His Word, isn't He? He's so kind to readjust our expectations and expose what where our faults are in terms of our thinking so in terms of suffering in this world you know there's two types of different sufferings that christian christians uh, can go through number one it's just like everybody else we suffer the effects of sin we suffer the effects of sin just like the whole entire world does this world is broken as the bible says the bible says that man suffers in this broken world there's plenty of effects of sin in the world whether that be physical suffering as you guys might be going through physical ailments Sickness, death came into the world through Adam's sin, the Bible says. The earth was cursed. And then not only are people messed up, the world itself is in bondage because of sin and needs liberation. So you see in the book of Romans that um, the whole entire world awaits for this future day when God will finally make all things new where tsunamis will be no more, earthquakes will be no more, all sorts of natural, natural disasters will be no more. So the Bible says that this suffering is real and it is because of sin. It certainly was not that way at the beginning when God made people and his creation. He says there, he has these pronouncements that everything is good. So the suffering that we experience today is not the way it was originally at his creation. It's because of sin that we suffer the effects of the fall. But if we, if we make it more specific in terms of Christians, Christians not only suffer, just like all men do in terms of the effects of the fall, Christians suffer for their Savior. 
So you've got to heap on more suffering for the Christian in particular. And this here is persecution for the faith. God's word shows and the church history shows that from the church's inception 2,000 years ago, Christians have been a persecuted people. They have suffered. Christians have suffered for their Christ. And so our expectations, according to the word of God, ought to be adjusted for all those who want to follow Jesus so that when we face suffering, we are ready for it. Should persecution come? We know it's the experience of the average Christian throughout church history for the last 2,000 years and even into the Old Testament, as we know from Noah's example that Peter brings up here. Peter tells us here that we are to arm ourselves with this type of thinking, this mindset that suffering is a normal part of the average Christian throughout church history and that prepares us to live here in this world. So some of you guys might be thinking like, man, okay, is this even worth it? Not only do we suffer the effects of sin like the whole entire world does, but on top of that, we suffer for our Savior. Is this even worth it? Am I doing the right thing here? Peter comes to our encouragement for you guys. Peter says that this type of thinking, when we arm ourselves with the same thinking of Jesus Christ who suffered, that is evidence, friend, that one really knows Jesus. So this is worth it. The end of verse 1, Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter is not saying that through suffering you can reach a state of perfection and live the rest of your time in the flesh, you know, uh, perfectly. That idea is not in the Bible. So we, here we are guarding ourselves from looking for opportunities to suffer for the faith. He's not saying go look for opportunities and so therefore you become perfect in the flesh here. That's not what he's saying. These words are meant to be an encouragement to suffering Christians. Arm yourselves with the same attitude of Jesus. And you Christians, whoever has suffered, which is them all here, whoever has suffered for Jesus Christ, you really have made a break from sin. That's what it means there, that you have ceased from sin. You've really made a break from, from sin, your old life. Instead, you've clung to Jesus. Whoever suffers in the flesh, that is, those who follow Jesus, have really made a break from their old life, and they have ceased from sin. That's what he's talking about here. It's somewhat similar to Jesus who, when he dies on the cross and then goes into the grave, he dies for sin. He's, he's cut off on behalf of all those who would believe in him. And so they are, they to some degree have ceased from the, the general idea of sin. They've made a break from their old life and then they go towards Jesus Christ and their new life. The emphasis here is on commitment. It's on choice. If we never choose to stand for Christ... And instead, opt, or so then we love the world and be of the world. I mean, doesn't that reveal where our heart is? If the opportunity to share Jesus Christ at work comes up, even though you know that your friend's going to reject you, and you choose, or sorry, you don't choose to stand for Jesus, that reveals your heart. That could reveal that you love the world. It could reveal that you are of the world. Well, the opposite is true. So if you choose Jesus Christ... And the suffering that follows, it reveals those heart commitments too. Embracing the call to suffer for the name of Christ is evidence here. Evidence that we have indeed counted the cost. 
So you, some of you guys might not be familiar with this term. It's in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, where Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's saying that there is a cost to be born for everybody who's going to follow Jesus. And then he goes on to say, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? What king does battle with another, he goes on to say, without first considering how many troops you have, whether or not you can actually win, these types of things. And in the context, Jesus' call to count the cost comes after he says that those who follow him must be ready to give up everything, should it come to it, father, mother, brothers, sisters, indeed their very own life. Because he knew that non-believing family members will turn against believing family members. Unity is not the number one thing that Jesus Christ came to bring. It is unity with God, which means that those who believe him, sometimes uh, their family members will turn against them. But again, Peter encourages these suffering Christians that choosing Christ and, and the suffering that follows is evidence that you follow Jesus Christ. So, friends, is, that, is, is this you? Are you suffering for the faith? Are people turning against you or are they slandering you even in the slightest of ways? Are you being mocked? Are you being ostracized? Friends, be encouraged that you stand for Jesus, Peter says. He says, know that you stand for Christ in the midst of suffering. You are passing the test. You are indeed counting the cost. I know you probably have all sorts of things on mind in the midst of suffering. You think, or, you know, you think like, what exactly are my relationships going to be like? What will your family uh, events come to be like, you know, during the holidays? How awkward it's going to be. But rest assured that in Christ, when you choose Christ, Christ Jesus knows your sufferings. He says that you will share in the glory of his name as you evidence that your allegiances are no more with your old world, but with the new one and the king that is Jesus Christ. So, friends, be encouraged. You realize that you show that you love the praise of God more than the praise of man when you stand for him. You show that you love Christ's holiness more than your old sinfulness when you stand for him. And if you see this going on in your life, listen to this, friends. Philippians 4.13 says that that work there, that thing that is causing you to stand for Christ is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Second Peter's second Peter one ten says that you are right now as you stand for Jesus, making your calling and election sure to the praise of God's glorious grace. That's what's going on in your life. The spirit is actually working in your life, changing your heart so that you might stand not for the old life, but for Jesus Christ, the king who reigns over your life now. So as you choose Christ and suffer for him, friends, I hope you are encouraged. It's evidence that you have broken with your old life of sin and that in Christ you have been raised to new life. As you live for your king and his kingdom, it is then that people will see how good it is to be underneath a Lord like that, living underneath his law of grace and love. And maybe according to the grace of God, those people that mock you and slander you will come to praise God on the day of his visitation. Maybe, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1, that these folks might be won over by your persistence to proclaim the message of Christ and to persevere in Christ-like living. So for those of you who might be feeling the pressure of being rejected by family members, 
Friends, in Christ we have a new name. So we bear the name of Christ. So if you say, well, forget it, you're no longer in the Yong family. Well, I am now in the Christ family. For those who are, whose families might be threatening to cut you off from, let's say, earthly support, remember that in Christ you gain an eternal inheritance, he says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, set apart for you, reserved for you. It's in the Son's will, the Father's will. He says, if you are about to lose your earthly family, you gain a spiritual family in the church. And most importantly, you gain a new relationship with your creator. You are reconciled to the father through the shed blood of his son with God on your side. As you stand for Christ with God on your side, who has given you everything in Christ, who is there to threaten you? Who is there to hurt you if you are zealous for doing good, Peter says. Friends, be encouraged. If you are standing for Christ, even in the midst of suffering or mockery or whatever, you are standing the test. As Peter says in chapter 1, we are being tested to see if our faith is genuine, if we truly will love Jesus over the world. So the main point, number one, how are we to live for the will of God? By arming ourselves with the attitudes of Christ. Suffering is a normal experience for the average Christian throughout history, and that affects how we are to live. It adjusts our expectations here. We can prepare for it. We can expect suffering for the godly, if God so wills it. So that's the how we are to suffer. That is, we are to equip ourselves, arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. Suffering will come. Now we turn to the why, the why, the specific why, at least here given in the passage, Point number two, be done with sin or because you are done with sin. Verse three says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Lawless idolatry here is just like a catchphrase for everything that opposes God. So the flow of thought thus far is number one, arm yourselves with the same attitude of Christ. Living for the will of God. That's how we live for the will of God and not the will of man. The reason here, verse 3, is because your old life is gone. The time that suffices, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Gentiles here, it's a biblical term for the non-Jews. The interesting thing, though, is that Peter is actually writing to a church filled with non-Jews. So this might sound like a bit of an insult. You know, calling them Gentiles, what the Gentiles do. It's actually not an insult. Here he is writing to a church mostly, once again, of non-Jews. And the term Gentiles, he's using the Old Testament term. The term is symbolic, referring to all those who reject Jesus. So you could be a spiritual Gentile. That's evident here. Um, So the, the Gentiles are those who reject Jesus. So spiritual Gentiles, those who reject Jesus, spiritual Israel, those who accept Jesus, those who follow Jesus. He says that the time suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. And then once again, he goes through this whole entire list of uh, things that are related to really the passions of the flesh. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now, certainly the list can could be expanded, but here it's all relation in relation to the passions of the flesh. So remember, these are the things that the members of the church used to do. It's a little side note. These are the things that the, the church used to do. And I find great freedom here because Peter is just simply saying, look, this is what you guys used to do. Your past 
what you guys used to do, the time of the past when you used to live in all those things, it suffices. Now, let's get rid of it and pursue Jesus Christ being faithful with the right expectations until he comes. Like, that's what we do, right? That's what maybe some of you guys know. Many of I've spoken to, I know a lot of your guys' testimonies, and uh, there's sexual immorality, there's drunkenness, there's a whole lot of things, and there's freedom here. Peter just acknowledges it. No shame. Put it aside. It suffices. Taken out of context, this the, the phrase, the time that is past suffices, taking that out of context, you know, it, it could read kind of funny. You might think that he's saying, look, those years when you lived in sin, those, those are good, the recommended amount of time. Uh, and so, therefore, we might come along inside, alongside other people and say, look, it's okay to live as a non-Christian for a certain point in time, up until a certain point in time. You know, that, that suffices, but that's not what he's saying. They were to look back at their lives when they lived against God and see just how insufficient that time really was. They're to look back at that time and see just how insufficient that time was. And I think this is an encouragement to these Christians who had given up their living their old lives, right? They had already died to their old lives. And now they're being slandered for it. And maybe they're tempted to go back for it. So think about, let's say, let's say after work, you know, you're, you're used to, uh, let's say you work 10 years at your workplace and uh, you're used to going out every Thursday, Friday night, you know, getting hammered, getting wasted, you know, giving in to sexual sin or whatever. And you did that regularly for years with your friends. And then all of a sudden you make a break for that. You become Christian. You know, Jesus forgives you of your sin. You lay hold of that by God's grace. You confess him. You repent of your sin. And then all of a sudden Thursday, Friday night comes and you're like, uh, okay, I'll go with you guys, but I'm not going to get drunk. I might have, you know, a certain amount of alcohol up until the point where I get drunk or buzzed. Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to get buzzed, but, you know, I'll go along with you. And, hey, if you even need, I'm going to drive you home. So I'm your designated driver always. And then your friends begin to mock you. They begin to slander you. They begin to speak ill of you at the water cooler at work. And so when you enter into that situation, you know that people are talking bad about you. That possibly is what is going on here. But Peter helps them look back at the old life. He says, look, I know that you're tempted to go back to the old life, perhaps. But look back and see that, 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 that pursuing all that junk for that period of time, it suffices. It is enough. Friends, aren't you glad that you were done with that life? Now, I know that we Christians are never perfect, so we probably still struggle with the very things that we were saved from. But we know that we are not enslaved to that. But just, just think about what you were given to in the past. And aren't you glad you are done with that? Done with living for the flesh. Sexual immorality, for example. The cravings that come with it, whether that be pure carnality. Or the promise of a relationship. A promise of intimacy. That though always leaves you hollow the next day. Using other people and being used by other people. I mean, aren't you glad you are done with that? Aren't you glad you are done with the lies and the dishonesty and the running behind people's backs and the hiding? Aren't you glad you're done with the hurt? I mean, just think about all the different people that you have hurt. Aren't you glad that even though we need to own our sin and confess, aren't you glad that we are done hurting other people? Aren't you glad you can leave behind those things and turn to Christ who is your satisfaction 
to know restoration and to know forgiveness. Aren't you glad that loving Christ and living for him is the turned up life now? Now, who in their right mind is going to slander you? We as Christians don't get off through sexual immorality, but sexual fidelity. Who's going to slander you? And what brings us joy is faithfulness to our spouse. So our spouse is therefore secure in Christ-like love. And in that relationship, there is true love, there is respect, there is honor. There is seeking to make the others feel secure in the love of Jesus. And in this life, the turned up life, we actually want to come home to our families and not the club. We actually want to be, we actually want to be present instead of living, letting our wives and children fend for themselves. I actually want my kids to have a father and a mother. I want to show them more of the father's care and compassion, right? Fault me for that. Go ahead. Slander me. Who is there to harm me if I am zealous for doing good? And then we can go on instead of using and abusing other people. Instead, we want them to know Jesus. We actually want to help them. We want them to know the goodness of Jesus Christ and life under him. We want to do good to them because that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. As he entered into our situation in order to love and to do us greatest good. As he called us to repent of our sins and believe. He sacrificed himself by dying on the cross for our sins. He came not to abuse people, but to save them. The time we spent pursuing sin, living in carnality, that suffices, doesn't it? We're meant there to look back and look at all the nastiness and the ugliness, not be afraid of it, but bring it to Christ, know that it is done. Now, if there are those who want to fault the Christian for those things. We are reminded here of verse 17 of chapter 3. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let them fault us if we want to love God and love our neighbor. If we want to be faithful to Christ, faithful to our families, faithful as citizens, faithful church members if we want to offer the free and full forgiveness of Jesus Christ so that they could know a peace unlike any in this world. Fault, let, let them fault us. Well, while we look at our old life and are glad we are done with it, not everyone will be glad with it, as is obvious from the passage. Look at verse 4 there. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But even in the face, right, even in the face of uh, walking in the will of God with the right expectations, being done with sin, it's, it's okay for people to fault us because we know that this is coming, right? This is our expectation. We know that suffering is going to come. And nevertheless, we are done with our old life and we know it's okay because we can trust in God's plan. This brings us to point number three. We can trust in God's plan. So we got expectations. We have... Uh, be done with sin, and then number three, we can trust in God's plans. The reaction of those who opposed the Christians is instructive for us here. You see there the progression. It starts with a slandering, and then second, they make a move to malign or slander you. This is instructive for us. It shocks them that we are no longer one with them. Instead, we are one with Jesus Christ. Christ has made himself one with us. 
And so they're, they're shocked with that break, that pulling away. You're no longer one with them. You know, if we are united to Christ, we become one with Jesus Christ, and our allegiances go from the world and to the Lord, but they, they therefore, are surprised. But it doesn't just lead to surprise. It leads to slander. They malign you, which means that they speak poorly of you, they demean you in their speech towards other people. And I think it helps us to understand why these folks might uh, have been maligned. Uh, you know, first, when a Christian desires to live in holiness, they live for the will of Jesus. And even if we're not judging other people, they are going to feel judged. Even if we're not actively judging, them, they're going to feel judged. If Christ, in Christ, there are the things that are right and things that are wrong. And so if we're living in Christ, we too will begin to understand that, oh, these things are right and these things are wrong and we want to live in these ways. But it goes deeper than that. Second, a lot of these things, sexual immorality, drinking parties, etc., were associated with public festivals. And so if the town is all going to worship idols and do all of these things, and you all of a sudden aren't joining them in their civic responsibilities, well, all of a sudden, you know, I'm suspicious towards you. I don't know if you are for the emperor or against the emperor. I don't know if you are for the city or, or if you are against the city. And so therefore, you are outcast. You don't want to sleep around anymore. You don't want to get drunk anymore. You must be a bad citizen then. And to some degree, you guys might know this dynamic. Maybe the culture that you grew up in maybe generally thought that to be Mexican is to be Catholic. Or to be Thai is to be Buddhist. To be Chinese is to be Buddhist. Whatever it is. And so then to choose to become Christian they think that you are rejecting your family and your culture, which might not necessarily be the case, but you understand here the dynamic. Think, too, about a modern example. You know, you, you, you think about the guys who are not taking part in uh, singing the um, national anthem. You know, instead they're going to take a knee. They might love America, like, genuinely, but yet they're going to take a knee. They're not going to sing certain things. And so everybody else thinking, you must be a bad citizen. You must not love America. And so uh, a little while ago, I put up something on Facebook with, it, with this one church planting group. Um, Acts 29, Matt Chandler was interviewing four African-American men, four or five, and one of them said that he didn't celebrate July 4th the way that most Americans would because on July 4th, uh, when they declared independence, it was independence for the white man, but while there was independence for the white man, African-Americans were still considered by law Something like three-fourths of a human being. How do you turn up to that and say, yay, for independence when there is slavery? And then other things too. You know, if you're considered to be three-quarters of a human being, to be listed with animals and the cattle that you own. Like, what exactly does celebration of independence really mean? Uh, and so they choose to celebrate the 4th of July in a different way. That doesn't mean that they're bad citizens. Anyways, that's in the non-Christian world. Imagine all of a sudden when now you enter into things that where if you follow Jesus, you really are following a true right and wrong. So not only would the world persecute you, perhaps uh, not only would you suffer from the world, but you suffer for following the faith of Jesus Christ. This would have resulted in uh, people ostracizing you, shaming you. And we think that we are so far from this context, and in some degrees we are. But in others, we're not. I mean, we probably have more in common than we realize. If you've suffered shame for the gospel, you know exactly what's going on here. 
And Peter helps them know what is to come. Some of you guys have told me stories about being shamed by your families for becoming Christians. Recently, you guys have told me this. And so the situation, these applications are more immediately applicable than we realize. They know shame. We know shame. Now, people get a bit confused regarding the flow and contents of the verses of five and six. Go ahead and look there. But I hope to explain how these verses offer hope to the suffering Christian. Right. This is about hoping in the will of God. In some ways, we can trust in what God is doing. Uh, Well, remember how I mentioned that persecution started off as slander and then um, and then eventually would lead to the deaths of many Christians. So in the past, we've talked about how when Peter's writing this this uh, letter, state sponsored persecution across the empire hadn't broken out yet. But here it's about to their slander. Eventually, it's going to move to deaths of Christians, many of them underneath Nero in the mid 60s. So this is kind of like the beginning that will eventually lead to the mass persecution of Christians. Well, Peter offers hope to persecuted Christians who are suffering less. And then in the next verse, he moves to offer hope to the Christians who will suffer the greater. So this is a movement from the lesser to the greater. He addresses the Christians who are suffering to a lesser degree, and then he'll address what is to come in the future or what has gone on in the past for Christians who have died. So first slander and then death. First, he addresses Christians being slandered. He says, even in the midst of slander, we can still be confident and hopeful. Look there at verse 5. Or let's just start at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But, he says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here, Christians are reminded that slander that you might hear from your own non-Christian family is not the last word. It is not their judgment on the Christian that is the last word. In fact, it is they who will be judged. And God here will call all to account the living and those who are dead. It's talking about all humanity here. And what helps the Christian continue to love and continue in godliness, love and godliness, even in the place of slander, is knowing that at the return of Christ, Uh, All men will have to give an account. Now, the fact that Christ will judge men is not written to satisfy any sinful sense of revenge that maybe some of you guys might be experiencing. They will be destroyed, right? And then it'll be my time. Then it'll be my turn. No, that's that's not why he's writing that. Understanding the fact that God has all things under control, underneath his sovereignty, underneath his good shepherding, enables the Christian to persevere in walking in holiness in enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, knowing that God has it under control means that we can, in fact, endure sufferings while loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, and even being ready to offer a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, regardless about what everybody says about us. So we can let that slander be flung up into the air. And the gut instinct, right, is to want to go out and bring it down. Say, no, that's actually not true. So someone in a blog post, I had written one thing on the Gospel Coalition. Someone responded and called me unbiblical, right? And my gut instinct was to say, well, hold on a second, because that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big accusation. And, you know, the, the, the church, you guys are, some of you guys are reading these things. So is Jeremy being unbiblical or not? And so I sent out this email. And I said, look, okay, my gut instinct is to say, no, that's not biblical. That's, that is biblical. Uh, and then the counsel that I got was, no, just let it lie. 
and then just trust the Lord. There's some things that you do want to respond to publicly. There's other things you might not want to respond to publicly. Um, my counsel that I received was, no, just let that lie up there. My temptation is to go out and take it down myself and say, let me be clear, reasons 1 through 100 about why I think what I'm saying is biblical. Uh, but there I was encouraged to just trust the Lord. He will bring that claim and put it where it deserves to be put. That, that's what's going on here. We're able just to love our enemies even, even in the face of slander. Why would we not go on loving in the face of slander? We as Christians know that judgment is coming, right? They do not. And so we as representatives of the Christ are charged to hold out the gospel of Christ. And so we ought to want them to come to the hope that we have. We ought to want them to glorify God on the day of Christ's visitation. Why would we not go on loving? We know that judgment is coming. They do not let them slander us for doing good. Let us love them instead. To not desire a sinner's salvation, to shut up on account for revenge or fear of man, is to not love and live like Jesus Christ. Did he not suffer for sinners in order to bring us to God? So this points us right back to Jesus Christ's example, his wonderful, patient, meek example. Christ not only endured sufferings while suffering unjustly, he endured suffering and unjust suffering of that in order to save sinners. We don't die on the cross for the sins of others, but we can suffer for the sake of his name in order that one day others, by God's grace, might confess Christ as the Lord and Savior. That's the lesser here, suffering for slander. There's still hope. Christ is going to come back. He's going to vindicate his name. Things will be taken care of. We can go on loving. Then Peter moves to the greater. Hope for Christians who die in the faith. Verse 6, it says there, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, let's think about interpretation here. It is best to not see, verse 6, as giving a reason for why Christians will, or sorry, why non-Christians will have to give an account. Don't understand that for as a reason for why non-Christians will have to give an account. I think that leads to more confusion here. It's better to understand it a different way. So verse 5, to review, offers hope for the slandered Christian. Verse 6 reaffirms hope for those who are going to die in the faith. So there's two affirmations. Verse 5, offering hope to the slandered Christian. Verse 6, reaffirming hope to those who die in the faith so let me talk about the logic here uh, and insert words if i could but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead that's all humanity then he switches now concerning the dead in christ this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that is those christians of previous generations who have died that though judged in the flesh the way people are that even though they die in the flesh they might live in the spirit the way God does. For slandered Christians, he reminds them that God will have the last word, right? For Christians who have died in Christ, they are reminded that God will, in fact, raise them from the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached to those long gone in generations past. Even though they die physically, they will be raised in the spirit to new life. Imagine the persecutors launching their attacks. It's stupid that you guys follow Jesus Christ. 
It's ridiculous that you are following the ways of Christ. Now, if you're visiting as a non-Christian, I recognize that not all non-Christians will say this. I recognize that there are a lot of non-Christians who will say, yeah, let's, let's dialogue about you know, the, uh, the, the history behind this and whether or not we should actually believe it. But there are some, even some of uh, the folks that I was growing up, growing up with, who uh, made it seem that way. It was stupid. It was ridiculous to follow the ways of Jesus Christ. And so they would malign us, Christians. Then maybe they go on to say, and you guys, you believe in Jesus Christ who's coming back to raise the dead. All people die. Where is this Jesus that you guys are talking about, this resurrection that you continue to insist upon? Your Christianity is pointless. And to that, Peter's response is, a resurrected life in Christ is hoping in the gospel. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope in the resurrected life, a life free from sin, a life underneath the rule of King Jesus, a life reconciled to God the Father. That's the reason the gospel was preached in previous generations, now gone. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now long gone, because even though they die, they are judged in the flesh the way all people are, they will be raised to new life by the power of the Spirit. And you see this similarities here, the parallels according to Jesus. We're looking to Jesus again, verse 18 of chapter 3 look there chapter 3 verse 18 it says there or the parallel you know peter's saying though we die in the flesh yet we will be raised by the power of the spirit just like jesus he was put to death in the realm of the flesh i'm inserting the realm he was put to death in the realm of the flesh but made alive by the agent of the spirit And so that there is the hope that non-Christians have. Now, again, application is not written to cultivate any sort of neglect towards non-Christians. We have salvation and you guys don't. No, this is written to move us to evangelize all the more, I think. We of all people once again know that death and suffering is coming. But we know, too, that death does not necessarily need to have the last word but that Christ defeats death. He defeats sin. He defeats Satan. And in his resurrection, he proves his power over them all. And for all who repent of their sins and believe on him are safe. We are secure in the blood of the cross. And so we are encouraged to talk to other people, to get them, to encourage them, to reason with them, to trust in the plan of God. It is true, as Hebrews 9 says, That one day man is destined to die and then face judgment. We know that that's true. That God will come again. Jesus is going to come again and he will judge all men. He's going to call everybody to account for the sins that they have committed. And you are either in Christ or you are either against Christ. You are either in your creator underneath his will or you stand against it. And then we're also meant here to call other people to trust as God will deliver on his promises, that he indeed will deliver those who trust in him. He will once again raise them from the dead and bring them to himself. As we see so many different times here, we saw in the beginning, right? This is what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ and the hope that we can have in him. So this message here is for non-Christians. Is there judgment after death? Absolutely. But friends, will Jesus deliver on his promise? to redeem all those who repent of their sins and believe on him? Absolutely. That's the wonderful hope that we can hold out, the hope that we hold out to you here and now. The Bible says, as I mentioned earlier, that all 
people have rebelled against God. God created everybody to be in a relationship with him. All people had rebelled. Uh, so we choose to live for our own ways and be our own so-called God. And so we are against God and God is against us. But where we created the problem, God provides the solution. He sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sin. So where we committed uh, sin against him, Jesus pays for the wrath that we deserve. Why? Why does he do that? Why is he so kind and loving? And it's because he wants to draw sinners back to himself as any good father would do. If he sees his son rebelling, he's going to say, look, let's be reconciled. But here are the things that need to take place. He says here, you need to believe on Jesus Christ in whom you were created, for whom you are to live, and you will know this full and free forgiveness. And if not, friends, you face this judgment, judgment even, the Bible says, in hell. This is an invitation to you guys. Repent of your sins and believe. If this is the first time you're hearing about this gospel, you want to learn more about how you can know God and, and receive this full and free forgiveness, definitely talk to your friends who brought you here. Talk to me. I'll be standing there at the back of the door. I'd be happy to talk to you and study who Jesus is according to his own claims, according to his very word. But friends, forgiveness is available. A relationship, new relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, an inheritance that is in, eternal is available to those who believe on him. To conclude, in this passage, God helps us shape our expectations, doesn't he? Expect suffering, just like Jesus. It's to be normal. Why is it that we are to live for the will of God? Well, he encourages us. Right? We're done with sin. We can, in fact, continue to do good, even though in the face of suffering we might be discouraged. He says, look, we're done with sin, and we can move forward. And then, number three, we can trust in God's plans. His plans to judge those who oppose him, and his plans to deliver those who trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that there is hope in Christ. Lord, we thank you too that there is a wonderful example in Jesus Christ, and that we can turn to Christ as you walked in meekness and experienced suffering, all out of love, all out of a desire to draw sinners towards yourself. You endured these horrendous things. God, we thank you that you give us this deliverance in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you give us this example about how we too, right now, Christians here, First Baptist Hacienda Heights, all the communities that we live in, the workplaces that we are in, the homes that we are in, Lord, we can be faithful to endure and faithful to do good, to keep our conduct, as your word says, conduct among all those who watch us honorable and pure, so that other people would know your character and so that other people would come to know the hope that we have. Lord, we thank you that death is not the last word. Slander is not the last word, but in Jesus Christ, you are beginning already to make all things new. So Lord, as we endure suffering, Lord, we pray that you would help us groan and long for the adoption of, of our souls and bodies when Christ Jesus will return to raise the dead to himself. We long for that day, Lord. We anticipate that day. Help us anticipate it all the more. We thank you, Lord, that you are making all things new and that indeed you have already done this in our souls, the power of your spirit to see Jesus Christ exalted. Uh, Lord, we know that even as we listen to this 
sermon and read the text about suffering, that it can be difficult. But Lord, we pray that we would go back to other truths of Peter, where he says that indeed grace will come in the future. Help us cling to this grace even right now. In your name we pray. Amen.